0: Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Valerie Bowling. The Chief Medical Officer Summit is a conference addressing the unique needs of Chief Medical Officers in biotech, and it's celebrating its 10th anniversary year this April 4th and 5th in Boston. And I am delighted to share with you one of the featured sessions from the 2021 CMO Summit on the topic of building up a company through to commercialization and beyond with Dr. Ron Cohen, who is the founder and president and CEO of Accord of Therapeutics. And this session was moderated with Ken Goetz, a director and professor of the Tufts Center for the Study of Drug Development. And Ken Goetz is also the founder and board chair of Sysscript. And in their conversation, it is colorful and unexpected and even uh, has uh, rather amusing moments, uh, and I will leave it at that. So I hope you enjoyed the podcast. And again, for more information about the 10th Annual CMO Summit, please visit theconferenceforum.org. Again, theconferenceforum.org, and enjoy the podcast. Thank you.
1: It is my pleasure to be here and uh, to be moderating this keynote session with Ron Cohen. Um, we're going to be looking at building a company uh, from startup through emerging organization uh, through to commercialization and beh- uh, beyond. And a lot of the CMOs who are attending this summit are currently or were once part of a startup or an emerging company, uh, unique challenges that they face, Um Uh, a unique skill set that's required to be effective at each stage along the way. And we're going to sort of look at uh, some of the insights uh, for those who are following that journey now. So joining me is Ron Cohen, who is the founder, president and CEO of Accord of Therapeutics. Ron, it is just great to have you here. Pleasure to uh,
2: be here, Ken. Thanks.
1: What a pleasure for me to be here with you. And I thought if we could begin, uh, if you could just tell a little bit about the Accorda Therapeutics story, uh, where it was and where it is today.
2: Well, sure. Uh, You know, it's it's a bit of an archetypal biotech story. Uh, You know, I started out my career as a doctor of internal medicine with a heavy leaning in neurology and pretty much by accident wound up in biotech. And this is going back to 1986, so a long time ago, very early years of the industry. And some friends of mine from medical school introduced me to a couple of scientists who were starting a little biotech company in the tissue engineering space. And uh, one thing led to another, and I joined them without any business background, any ambition ever to be in business but it just in the moment seemed to be something that I needed to do. Uh, So I did join them. And of course, none of us knew at all what we were doing, but we had uh, a lot of ambition and a lot of passion and perseverance. And that, that was what sustained us. And we uh, made one mistake after another, usually uh, pretty much on an hourly basis. And we would learn from those and then move on. And ultimately, that company uh, was known as Advanced Tissue Sciences. We moved it from where it started in New York to San Diego. And I spent six and a half years there. We took it public. Um, I was running clinical trials of a human dermis, cultured dermis for burn victims. And eventually, uh, that product got approved after I left. But about six and a half years into it, Uh, I left very much the way I had come, which was in the moment, it felt like it was time. And I didn't know time for what, but I knew it was time to move to the next thing, whatever that was. And I was so excited and enthralled by what I had learned about the biotech model. And frankly, because it was a startup, there were uh, five of us when I started. And by the time I left, we had about 110 of us, but I had done at one point or another, almost every job in the company. And the only one I hadn't done was finance. Uh, <laughs> so so uh, uh, when I left, I just started exploring, and it was the first time since I was preschool that I actually had unstructured time that I needed to structure and figure out what I wanted to do. And what I did was many things. Uh, I started out with a six week backpack trip to Europe, which I'd never done because I'd gone through school straight through. Um, I interviewed at other biotech companies and I learned more about what was going on out there. I read obsessively. I was reading business uh, literature because I didn't have an MBA. So I wanted to shore up that side. I realized that finance was the only job I hadn't done. So I got a business school accounting textbook and I read it straight through and did all the problems in the problem book so that I had a grounding in how you read p and L and how you read a balance sheet and all of that uh, good stuff. And then I was reading uh, neurology literature. My dad was a neurologist before me. I was very interested. I almost became a neurologist myself after my internal medicine. Uh, And what stopped that little sidelight for those of you uh, who would like to know the things you can do with your medical degree, was I decided to go back to New York from my residency in Virginia uh, to be an actor. That is true. True story so I found a studio I studied for three years I auditioned for five years I did commercials I did off off off-broadway while I was practicing medicine in New York City and it was in the middle of all that that I met these two biotech folks joined their company and then I never looked back from that point on so after I it wound up being about a year of sabbatical it was not intentional but it was about a year But at the end of that year, I had formed my thoughts and I had taken stock of everything I had done and learned and what I wanted to do. And what I wanted to do was go back to neurology, but with everything that I was so passionate about in biotech. And that was the ability to take science out of the lab and put it into patients where it could improve patients' lives. And as a physician, that sang to me. And it told me that I could, if it worked, I could have more impact on more patients' lives than I could in a lifetime of individual practice. So I was hooked, and I started to put a corda together. Uh, I started in my second bedroom in San Diego. I moved to Las Vegas for two years. Don't ask, and I worked out of my bedroom there, or my second bedroom there. And then uh, my girlfriend and I, who is uh, now my spouse, moved to New York, which is my hometown. And um, we, I, I continued there, working out of my second bedroom. Uh, then we got married, had a child, and I couldn't do that anymore. So I got a, a friend of mine who had an executive search firm in biotech to sublet a walk-in closet to me. It was literally a supply closet with a window. It was about six by 10 feet. I crammed a bookcase and two desks and a (laughs) guest chair in there. The guest chair was plastic, of course. And my my girlfriend, who is a communications specialist in biotech, was working with me to assist me in setting this all up. And then at one point we decided that someone needed to actually make a salary. So she went out and began uh, or continued her career in biotech communications. And I brought in someone uh, who is with us to this day um, uh, as our head of communications and patient liaison. So that was the beginning of Accorda. And after about five years of self-funding, getting angel funding, bringing together 10 of the world's leading scientists in nerve regeneration and spinal cord injury and putting them together as a virtual company, uh, we finally made enough progress that we got a venture round five years into it in 1998 for $25 million. And all of a sudden I had five VCs on my board and um, we took it from there. So that was the early days of Accorda uh, if you then, we incorporated in 1995, so we, uh, I was working on it since 1993, 1998, we got our venture round. We then raised about $160 million in total over the next eight years in venture capital. And then we went public in 2006. And meanwhile, we were putting all of these different things into the lab, into the clinic, and nothing was really taking until we got hold of this molecule called foraminopyridine and actually we had gotten hold of that before we did the venture round Uh, but we got some rights to it partnered with a company called Elan Pharmaceuticals who had other patents around it and we then began an odyssey that took us about 15 years until we finally got an approval of that drug for uh, helping people with MS, multiple sclerosis, walk. Uh, the drug improves nerve conduction in damaged, demyelinated nerves. And uh, it's unique, and it wound up becoming a standard of care in the field because there was nothing else like it. So uh, that really was uh, one of the great, significant, most meaningful accomplishments in my career. And of course, I didn't do it on my own. I had a awful lot of people working as a team to get that done so but i did uh run that program i was effectively the cmo of the company even though i was also the founder and ceo we had a chief scientific officer who was my close collaborator and the two of us ran that entire program until we ultimately got the approval and there's a whole bunch of stories around that leading up to the fda and the adcom uh, that maybe we'll save for another time, but it was uh, quite an extraordinary experience to get it approved. Once we did that, we turned into um, a full-scale commercial company. We had earlier strategically gotten hold of a spasticity drug called Xanaflex capsules from our partner, Elon. We commercialized that into a generic market early on to really to get our commercial chops so that by the time we got Ampera approved, we hoped, we would have enough experience to be able to launch it on our own and keep the rights in the United States. And that's exactly what happened. And from there, we invested in multiple other programs. Uh, We got proper CMOs along the way. And uh, I I think we put a total of nine drugs into the clinic so far in our uh, uh, existence. Two of which have come out the other side as approved project uh, products so far. The one that was most recent was an inhalable form of levodopa for people mm. with Parkinson's disease who have so-called wearing off or off periods, and uh, that one is on the market now as well. Uh, now along the way, we've had our trials and tribulations. So. Uh, uh uh, Ampira almost did not get approved and we were on the brink of disaster at that time earlier than that we'd had three failed trials for Ampira in one week in 2004 the VCs went to war with us many of them on the board we fought a war with the VCs for a year some of them were with us some of them weren't we eventually came out the other side and convinced them that They should fund one more trial. That one wound up with a primary outcome p-value of less than 0.0001, and that's what allowed us to survive and thrive. Uh, More recently, three years ago, the courts overturned our patents on Ampyra nine years before they were due to expire and that was a $600 million a year drug at that point, and you can imagine uh, what kind of a reversal that was. So for the last three years, we've been restructuring the company and working to build the market for our new Parkinson's product, Imbresia, in order to bring our way back. But meanwhile, what that's meant is we're no longer able to develop new drugs. We don't have the funds to do it and you know this this brings up a topic another topic that's near and dear to me and was one of my major focuses when i was the chair of the biotech innovation organization bio and that is the entire debate around drug patents drug pricing exclusivity and so on and the need for policymakers and the public and the media to understand what gets lost when you focus only on price only on duration of exclusivity and lose the big picture of not having new innovative drugs in the future if you take it too far
1: so ron what an amazing amazing story we could spend so much time just unpacking uh, so many aspects of your journey. I'm just to try to summarize a few things, and then I, I'm really curious to hear your thoughts. Clearly, uh, uh, having a science and a medical background is sort of a foundational skill set, but there were so many other things that helped drive your journey. Um, uh, very opportunistic. It sounds like a real willingness to take risks and to. Uh, to sort of have fun along the way, a willingness to really uh, to go with the flow a bit. Uh, and uh, that's a remarkable uh, foundation as well, especially when you're moving into the world of uh, unknown outcomes in science and really trying to build a company around that. You mentioned a lot about uh, business and sort of management skill and the finance skill. That's something that I think a lot of uh, CMOs and executives with a science grounding uh, kind of stumble into. Mm -hmm. And and, uh, another area that you touched on is just managing the uh, capital markets and investor expectations. Um, Any tips and advice for CMOs that are starting to weigh into that now? You know, how do you approach that so that you can continue to uh, move forward with your own Uh, objectives, uh, but at the same time, you really have to bring the organization along with you and bring your investors along with you.
2: Yeah, uh, great questions, thanks, Ken. Um, Well, there's a lot to unpack just in the question, so uh, I'll take a crack at it. First of all, uh, my, my view is that if you're a CMO, you still need to have a solid grounding in the basics of finance. Uh, basics of business management Uh, I mean clearly you need to understand management if you're a CMO you're managing quite a few uh, groups of people from clinical operations to regulatory medical affairs uh, pharmacovigilance and so forth so you, you need to have an excellent grounding in simply the principles of good management and how you recruit excellent people how do you motivate them get them to work together in an ongoing way so critical critical skill sets and by the way most of us in my experience as physicians that's not our wheelhouse unless we happen to have been born into a family that taught us that and that's rare uh you know medicine tends to be taught for for uh, individual contributors right people who set up their own practice Uh, And even there, we're finding that in today's world, no matter what you do in medicine, you need a business background. You know, you need to have to understand the financials of setting up a practice, dealing with insurance and so on. But in biotech, it's also critical um, because when you're a member of the leadership team, you need to understand that when you're running your clinical trials, you need to look for the most cost effective way of doing them, especially if you're in a smaller biotech company that doesn't have infinite funds. Uh, you need to know what which which um, which functions are your strongest suit in-house, which ones you're better off outsourcing, and how you manage all that. And you also need to know how to read a PL and a balance sheet and a cash flow statement. You just absolutely and, need to know those things.
1: Ron, how do you know uh, when to lock horns with uh, your lead investors and when to let them uh, advise you on the ways to scale and uh, market opportunities. Uh, How do you strike that balance?
2: So are you asking me as CEO or for a typical CMO?
1: Um, That's a really good question. I, I was really asking more as a CEO, but someone who really started as a a medical as a physician so obviously that's really your leaning
2: so um i'll tell you you know a little bit about how i train for all this and even as a cmo because if you're a cmo and your company is seeing you know is moving along in later stages of clinical trials or even phase two um, you will very likely be called upon at some point to speak to investors if you're a public company it'll be public investors if you're private it'll be your venture capital backers or new funders that you want to attract and so on you'll be running the r d days for the company with uh, with their investors so you can't escape it you're you're going to be part of that and you do need okay. to understand how you communicate with investors in the right and most effective way because again, our training in general as physicians, scientists is we talk to other physicians, we talk to other scientists, we talk to patients. We don't necessarily talk to hard boiled business people and green eye shade people and you know, <laughs> investors, that's not, or bankers, that's not our forte. So, and it is a very different way. It, it, it doesn't mean that you're giving them different information, right? You always tell the truth you're always transparent but it means you have to present it in a way that fits into their context right so for you know just as a broad example if you've got some hot um, new immuno oncology mechanism right if you're talking to fellow scientists you'll start getting into the weeds because everyone loves that and you'll really get into the molecular basis and and uh, the submolecular basis When you're talking to most investors, even though they can be very sophisticated, some of them will be PhDs and MDs, but some of them won't, nevertheless, you need to put what you're saying in a context that answers their questions, which their questions are, why should I invest in you rather than your five apparent competitors out there? How long is it gonna take to get to success? on what basis should I believe that you're going to get to success with this, Um, uh, it's not enough to just show me a bunch of in vitro and and in vivo data or even some phase one or some half-baked phase two data. Give me an understanding of why I should believe this is going to work, how long is it going to take, what's it going to cost to get there. And so here again, you get into that interface between your wheelhouse, which is the medicine, the regulatory, the clinical trial design, the operation, and their wheelhouse, which is so what? Tell me the so what.
1: Very good advice, very valuable perspective. Um, You mentioned that you've uh, essentially played the role of CMO uh, why, at the same time you were uh, uh, the senior executive, uh, the most senior executive. As a result, though, that interplay between those two roles went on inside your head, but obviously in many organizations, there's a, uh, these are distinct individuals. Do you have any advice for h- what the CMO and the CEO need to really do in order to collaborate optimally, uh, collaborate effectively?
2: So, I think you've touched, uh, uh, Ken, on um, a, a really important point, which is it's very individual. It depends on your company, your stage of development, uh, how many people you have or can afford to have, what are the skill sets of the CEO, and what are the skill sets of the CMO, and how well do you collaborate and work together. I mean, I would say from for, as a starting point if you interview for a position as a cmo and you're sitting there and you love everyone you meet except the ceo don't take the job just just don't take the job um the most important person you will interact with on a regular basis is the ceo because what you're doing is you're controlling the lifeline to the company which is the product development if you know once you get to the clinic and the ceo is going to have to be shoulder to shoulder with you every step of the way. If the CEO is a business person who has maybe a working knowledge of, of you know the medical and, and clinical side but is not an expert, then that's a certain kind of relationship where you are taking the entire leadership of that function but you're bringing the CEO along with you every step of the way and uh you know this i i never like to say always or never except in this case (laughs) you can never over communicate with your ceo if you're a cmo uh you should never assume that hey i got this he or she doesn't have to worry about this i'll take care of it because what happens is First of all, sometimes you don't got this and you figure it out a few months later and then you haven't brought your CEO along, it's very bad, okay? Second of all, even if you do got this, the CEO is usually the one who's out there pitching the company every single day to various constituencies and the CEO needs to understand exactly where you are or where the company is, especially in its development at any given time so that he or she knows how to position things and again when i say position the furthest thing i'm intending is not to tell the truth you always tell the truth but you tell it in certain contexts and without the 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 up-to-date knowledge of exactly where things are you haven't got a compass you don't know which way to steer the conversation so you as cmo You need to feel completely comfortable that your CEO shares your values, shares your passion, shares your view of where things need to be going and how you're gonna get there, and that you are collaborating by sharing each other's strengths with each other.
1: That's incredibly valuable. Um, Your candid response, how important was going to acting classes? to uh, helping you uh achieve uh, all, all the success uh, at accord of therapeutics has that played an important role as well
2: so <laughs> <laughs> well i'm not gonna lie um <laughs> i'll tell you what it has helped i can't speak to whether it's helped us be successful or not because you know what there are a lot of very very successful ceos out there who who really don't communicate very well. And they have other people around them who do it uh, instead of them or, or or supplement what they're doing. So again, it just depends on your particular style and the culture of your company and, and capabilities in your company. Uh, you know, what what led to our success more than anything was picking the right molecules and then refusing to die when things went south over and over and over and getting smart people over and over, just recruiting smart, passionate people to figure things out who refuse to give up. That's what led to the success, seriously. Um, But where the acting background did help is um, in my public roles where I'm being interviewed either here or on stage or on TV, it has really helped me be comfortable telling our story uh, in ways that, you know, I get feedback that people uh, generally understand and appreciate. And I, th- I worked at it and it's not just because I took some acting classes back in the late eighties. It's because when I did that, it showed me the importance of it and what, what you could do with it. And so it's not like I stopped there. I have been training over and over and learning and soliciting. So as CEO, periodically, I would bring in media trainers and they would train me and key members of my leadership team in media. So I've gone through a few rounds of that. And by the way, even, even though you're, you may be a CMO and not a CEO or a CFO, as I mentioned, you're going to be presenting to constituents of your company. And it really helps to have that kind of training so it's painful because what they'll do is they'll come it'll be usually someone who was some high-powered reporter who's now doing consulting and they'll come in put you on video and start doing a they'll grill you on camera the way they would if they were a reporter today and you'll the first time you do it you'll just stumble all over yourself you'll say something where you'll go, oh my God, why did I say that? And then they make you watch it. Then they make you watch it over and over. And they'll
1: rip you apart, right? It's (laughs) awful.
2: (laughs) But, but, uh, you know, I forget who said, someone once said um, that learning, it might've been Freud actually, that learning is the biggest possible insult or affront to your ego. (laughs) Love it. And you need to put your ego aside, you need to willfully put it aside and realize and, and uh, forgive my use of the of the uh, colloquialism, but the first several or many times you try it, you're going to suck. And you <laughs> will you will be so humiliated, you'll be you'll feel burning in your face when you watch yourself. If you stick with it and do it enough, you will get to a point where they can't stump you or rarely can they stump you. They can throw any question they want at you and you've got your two or three key points in your head and you will find ways to take their question and answer the question that you want to and need to answer. It's a fabulous skill set to have. It doesn't come easily like anything else. It's like studying medicine. No one out here knew how to practice medicine when they went to medical school. And you didn't even know how to do it when you got out of medical school and probably not so much out of your residency. It takes <laughs> oh. it takes years, right? <laughs> hey, and you're hey, still learning. It's the same so thing. Wrong. You never stop learning.
1: We, we have burned through our time uh, and uh, this has been so enjoyable. I just have one last question for you just to sort of close things out. Um, you mentioned that you uh, were very actively involved in uh, leading bio, and that was a great sort of front row seat to see how the biotech industry and and the broad community has evolved. Do you think if a court of therapeutics were launched today, would versus when it was launched in the '90s? Do you think it would be a similar Experience to achieving the kind of uh, growth and scale? Or do you think uh, that the environment has changed and the skill set uh, is a little different now than it was uh, 20 some odd years ago?
2: Wow. The environment is very different, very, very different, but on so many levels. You know, I started with a harebrained idea and I didn't mention it earlier, but my original idea for the company was to restore function to people with spinal cord injury. And by the way, I still have that in mind. Um, mm. you know, we have some setbacks. I still have in mind that I haven't finished that mission. Uh, the word Accorda has the word cord in it for spinal cord and it also had the sense of cord or teamwork because we were virtual and I was yoking together all kinds of people of different talents before Zoom existed. We were doing it By telephone and in-person meetings but i was operating for five years out of a single room right so could you do that today i don't know i don't know and by the way i had no technology it was a harebrained idea and (laughs) just built it brick by brick and every now and then i'd find someone who would listen but to give you an idea i spent a year and a half at one point presenting to 70, it was seven zero venture capital groups and I emerged with zip, zero. But every time I presented and they turned me down, I always did the same thing. I would say, hey, would you mind spending a few minutes with me explaining to me why you turned me down? That was painful. By the 70th presentation, the slideshow I was giving was about a factor better than the first one I had given because I took everything they were telling me and I would roll it in again and again. And I still didn't get a deal. I waited a year, made more progress, went back and saw 70 VCs again, many of them the same ones. That's when we got the $25 million deal. I don't know if in today's world, and, and there are several reasons for it. One, technology is is, light years more expanded and deep and extensive than it was back in, 19, in 1995, when I was beginning to push this. So the bar for getting investment is much higher because you're competing in, in a Pacific Ocean, not in a pond anymore.
1: So uh, Ron- I
2: gotta bring the goods.
1: Yeah. So to be continued, I really hope we'll have a chance to to uh, continue this discussion. But thank you so much. Uh, This has been just a wonderful discussion. And I'll now turn it back over to uh, to our our colleagues at uh, the conference forum. Thank
0: you so much. Thank you so much, Ken and everyone. Thank you.